First John chapter two. First John chapter two. Remember the whole theme of First John is going deeper with Jesus. John's desire is that we would have that intimate relationship, that deep fellowship with Jesus and the Father that He has. And so he's sharing with us how we can do that. And as he gets into chapter 2, he explains that part of how we go deeper in our walk with the Lord is by having assurance of our salvation, by knowing that we belong to him, knowing we're born again. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm not writing necessarily to people who don't believe in Christ. I'm writing to people who are born again. But the purpose is I'm writing to people who are born again that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, you might keep trusting the Lord, go deeper with Him. That's His heart's desire, that we would know that we know that we know that we are saved. And so, in chapter 2, as he's getting into that topic of how do we know, he explains that we know by kind of looking at ourselves under the microscope of three tests, three examinations. And John, in the beginning of chapter 2, gave us that first test, the moral test or the obedience test. And he explained that the normal growth path for a Christian is obedience. And if we're growing in our obedience to God, then it shows that we are truly different, that we've been born again, that Jesus is living inside of us. And that's what obedience is. It's an outward reflection of making Jesus our home. He is at home in our hearts. We're seeking to know Him better. And now He's changing us from the inside, and it affects how we act on the outside. And as he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's evidence of our love for him. Well, as we get to verse 7 in chapter 2, the second test now is about love too. But it's different than the moral test because instead of being about how we relate to the Lord, the moral test is how we're relating to God. This test is about how we relate to other people. So chapter 2, we begin in verse 7. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. He that says that he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he's going because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So here we have this second test. And before he gets into the details of the test, John kind of explains this paradox of God's command for us to love one another. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. What I'm about to talk about next, I, I got what we talked about the obedience test but what I'm about to talk about next, he says it's not a new commandment. It's not a new here means uh, previously unknown or previously unheard of. It's not something you haven't heard before. Old means it's something that has existed for a long time. It's an old commandment. It's been around for a while. In fact, he says, which you had from the beginning. This old commandment is the word or the message which you have been hearing from the beginning. And so the idea here is I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before. In fact, from the moment you first got saved, the start of your salvation, you started hearing about this commandment. So John's next test isn't going to be some new idea that we've never read about in the Bible before. It's a message that they've been hearing from the first day they started following Jesus. 
And it's the message that you've heard from the first day you started following Jesus. I mean, I hope when I say to you that God said or Jesus said, love one another, that that's not the first time you're hearing that. That should be something that we've all heard multiple times. This is a cornerstone of what it means to be a Christian, that we love one another. So, John doesn't even tell them what the message is, this word that they've heard from the beginning, because it's a message every Christian has heard numerous times from the earliest time of their conversion. John 15, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what Jesus said. Now, what's interesting is if we go to John 13, uh, I think I said John 15, that's John 13, 35, not John 15. But if we go to John 13, And verse 34, right before Jesus says that, he says this, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by that, this, shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So, John explains now, he says this is an old commandment because, I mean, we've heard it from the day that Jesus said it to the disciples, and you've been hearing it ever since, from the day you got saved. But now John explains in verse 8 of 1 John chapter 2 why Jesus calls it a new commandment, because it wasn't a new idea. If you go back in Leviticus, you find it in the Old Testament too. So he says here, again, which means, but in another sense, or from a different perspective, a new commandment I write unto you. From one perspective, this is something we've been hearing about from the day we got saved, not a new idea. But from a different perspective, it is a new commandment that he's going to talk to us about. You see, from the perspective of time, the command to love one another has been around since the beginning of Christianity and from the beginning of every Christian's learning. If you're saved today, you've heard this. But from the perspective of living that command out… Well, that's a lesson that is constantly new because we're constantly growing in how to live out this command to love one another. It's constantly new. And so that's what John says. Again, a new commandment I write unto you from a different perspective, which thing is true, that it's a new commandment. The concept that love one another is a new commandment is true, he says, in him and in you. He says it's in him because Jesus called it a new commandment, and then in us because there are previously not known things about love that become known to us more and more as we grow in Christ. I told Beverly very early on in our relationship that I loved her and I wanted to marry her. I think it's probably a week into our dating relationship. If you haven't figured it out, I'm a little dramatic. But I meant every word of it. Every word of it. And I mean every word of it when I say it to Beverly today. But I'll tell you this, Loving Beverly definitely means something different to me now than it did back then. Way different to me now. Now, I fully recognize I still have a lot to learn about what it truly means to love a person like Jesus loves me. Like he said, if you have loved one to another, like I have loved you. Like I still have a lot to learn in that department. I still have tons of room for improvement when I measure my love against the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that we read in our Scripture reading. And I don't have to go far. Love is patient, still learning, right? But while all of that's true, I can say that in 26 years of marriage and 31 years of friendship with Bev, 
I have grown closer to that description than when I first started. And there have been massive epiphanies along the way. And because I'm a little dramatic and I'm expressive, I tend to let Bev know when these epiphanies have hit me. (laughs) We were fighting and arguing once about something and went to bed and it was one of those nights where we did let the sun go down in wrath. And, uh, or no, we didn't actually. I mean, maybe, maybe I didn't, but I was laying there and she's, you know, turned over this way in the bed and I'm turned over this way in the bed. We're not talking and, you know, grumbling to the Lord and the Lord's dealing with me. And he's like, well, you know, this is, you need to understand something. Just because she doesn't, just because she's not like you doesn't mean she's evil. Because she doesn't think or see things the way you do doesn't mean she's wrong. And I don't know why, but for the first time, that struck me as, oh, (laughs) that's not very loving of me to think that someone needs to think and look at things like I do to be smart or right or godly or decent human being. And so I rolled over and I said, you know what? I said, I think I just realized something. I heard a groan on the other side because she knew I was going to say something insulting, but I meant it in like a good way. I said, I figured out. I said, you're not wrong. You're just different. She goes, good night, Will. (laughs) Epiphanies, you know? I I don't realize how selfish I am. I don't realize how prideful I am. I don't realize how self-absorbed I can be, constantly growing. And and so there have been those massive epiphanies along the way that changed the way that I would respond to her, where instead of thinking, that's obviously wrong, I go, let me hear her out. I mean, like, actually think about what she's saying, ponder what's behind what she's saying, and, and recognize that we're both pursuing the same goal, even if it's coming from different angles. There have been those recognitions of selfishness that I didn't even know was there. Understanding of practical ways to show the kind of love that Jesus shows me. And that's been true of my relationships with other people as well. And so there is a sense, when we talk about the commandment to love one another, there is a sense that while it's old and it's like fixed, it's also progressive. I realize I just triggered a large part of you. But by dictionary definition, the word progressive means something that's happening or developing gradually or in stages, something that proceeds step by step. And so when we talk about learning to love, that is that sense of we should be progressing in that. We progress in living out this very old commandment every time we grasp a bit more of what loving others looks like. And with each step we take in growing in our understanding of loving others, the command becomes new to us. When we hear about it, we go, oh, that means something different to me than it did last week. And that should be the constant process of someone who's a believer. So when we talk about the command to love one another, it's a paradox. Now, some people say, well, they the Bible's got a contradiction right here. It says, love one another is an old commandment, love one another is a new commandment. No, a paradox is different than a contradiction. A paradox is where two different things exist at the same time. They're real, 
They may sound opposite, but they do exist at the same time. So the commandment is old and new at the same time. And the reason that the commandment is old and new at the same time is because we're a bit of a paradox. John explains, he goes, because, why is it a paradox? Why is it both old and new? It's because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. The reason that love, the command to love one another is both old and new is because, well, the the darkness is past, or literally is in the process of being stopped or in the process of passing away, which means it's still around. What is darkness? Well, John uses this word to refer to the realm of sin and evil, the current state of the world as we see it in rebellion against God. When Jesus came, he came and brought light and love and truth, and of course, salvation. But the world didn't all of a sudden stopped ticking in the way it was moving. Darkness continued to exist, and it still exists today. The world is still, generally speaking, in rebellion against God. So this darkness, while it's passing away, and Jesus is going to come back and deal with it, come quickly, He hasn't yet, so it still exists. But at the same time, John says the true light now shines. Now, what's the true light? Well, This is a phrase John has used before, so we have to go back to his gospel, the gospel of John, to understand what he's talking about. In the gospel of John, chapter 1, John gives a bunch of interesting descriptions of Jesus before he gets into the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he uses some words to describe who Jesus is and what he is like and what he was doing by being incarnated by becoming a man. And so he explains this or introduces us to Jesus in this first chapter in verse 1 by saying, in the beginning, in the origin, in eternity was the Word. He just always was. He has always existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been a part of the Godhead. He was God the Son from all eternity. He's always been God. He's always been there. And then just in case we didn't understand what he was talking about, he said the same was in the beginning with God. There's never a time when the Father existed or the God had existed and Jesus wasn't a part of it. He is co-eternal, co-existent with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. All things were made by him. He was active in creation. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the reason that Jesus could be active in creation is because, verse 4, in him was life. In him exists life. And that life was the light of men. I can't say life exists in and of myself. I don't give life to anything. I contributed DNA to my children, but I didn't give life to them. In fact, one might say I brought them down a peg. My contribution was not helpful. I passed on my sin nature and all of my DNA issues, right? So I contributed that, but I did not bring life. God breathed into them and they became a living soul. He has life in and of himself. It's this idea that God is, he's self-existent. He's self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything external from himself to exist. Life comes from him. And that life that he has, it's the light of men. It's what we need. And verse 5 says that light, it shined in the darkness. Jesus became flesh. He became a man. He shined into this world that was in rebellion against God. And the darkness did not... King James says comprehended, but it means it didn't seize him or apprehend him. It couldn't stop him. 
And so as he was being brought into this world, he came into this world, the darkness couldn't stop him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Lord protected him. Verse 6 says that as he grew up, there was a man that was sent from God. His name was John. And this is John the Beloved talking about John the Baptist. This same, this John the Baptist, he came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men might through him might believe. So John the Baptist, you know, he declared Jesus is that light. He's that Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He's the one who came into the darkness. Darkness couldn't touch him, and he's going to rescue us. John announced that. John was not that light, verse 8, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. And here John explains, that was the true light, which is lighting every man that comes into the world, or literally is bringing light to every human being the moment they're born into our world. The moment a human being is born, Jesus is bringing light, combating that darkness in a person's life, drawing them by His Spirit to not be in rebellion against God, but to repent of their sins and put their trust in the cross and in Him. We go back to 1 John. That's what John is saying. The darkness is is dying. It's passing away. God's going to judge it, but it's still here. But it's not alone. Jesus has come. The true light It's giving and bringing light right now. So in other words, the world we see right now, it's a paradox. We have two things going on at the same time. Jesus, the true light has come, and he's shining his light upon every human being the moment they enter the world. But at the same time, the darkness is at work. Darkness isn't gone yet. It's in the process of passing away, but it hasn't been fully dealt with. It's still working in people's lives as well. And so if you and I look around us, We're going to see those who oppose God and those who seek to follow the Lord. We're going to see those who are blind to love and those who are seeking to progress in living it out. Those two things are going to exist side by side. And because those two things exist side by side in our world, we have that other paradox. That's why the command to love one another is a paradox, because we still have two things influencing us. While the commandment has been there for 2,000 years, we're still trying to figure it out because darkness is still at work too. You think of these, these subtle things sometimes. Like I, I grew up, and as a kid, my family was not saved at the time, and, and so as a kid, you knew that your go-to argument when someone took something that you wanted was, I had it first, right? Like, what are you doing with that? I, I had that first. What do you mean? You weren't using it right now. Yeah, but I had it first. I had it just a couple minutes ago. I went to get a drink. And that was like the end-all arguments. Like, I had it first. And I remember as a young Christian, not married yet, and I was listening to a teaching, and the teaching in the Scripture was on, they were in the Scripture and talking about parenting. And he explained, he's like, why do you allow that argument? Where do you see that in the Bible? Like, that's selfishness. That's pride. And I remember thinking to myself, duh. Like, we don't even realize how darkness influences us. I see parents do it today. They're like, well, you know, well, he had it first. Hold, hold on a second, sister. Why does that matter? My kids, we never taught them to say, well, I had it first. But sure enough, that would happen at times. They'd be playing with a cousin or with a sibling or whatever. You'll hear it, ah, I had it first. Get over here. What are you guys playing with? Thing. I had it first. When he left it, give it to me. Mine now. <laughs> no lie. <laughs> Numerous things sat on my desk, belong to me now. And I'd explain, I'd say, 
And I turn to the one, you know, saying, I had it first. I say, listen, this thing right here, the reason I took it from you is because this is more important than someone else to you right now. And that's not how Jesus taught us. We're to prefer one another. We're to be kind to one another. We're to defer to one another. We're to to be unselfish. And as long as this is more important to you than another person, I'm not going to let you have it. Because that idol, and then you, you melt down their, no, I'm just kidding, I didn't melt down their toy, you know. Yeah. It's only one thing you do with an idol, six-month-old son, you burn it. No, but I would say, until you can start understanding that, you can't have this because it's too important to you. And then you turn to the other one who's arguing with him, took it, and be like, why did you jump in there all of a sudden? Like, why did you think it was okay? Be like, well, he just put it down, I'm going to go get it. Like, why didn't you think about how that would make him feel or make her feel? Or that would hurt that you would be just waiting to pounce on something until they were done, that you didn't even consider how that might affect them. I'm taking it from you as well because this is more important to you than another person. You know, I don't know about your family, but, you know, my kids, it was always about, like, certain spots they like to sit in the house. And they'd be sitting there and curled up, reading a book or whatever, and they get up to go get a drink. And you're a parent, you know what's coming because you see the other one. He's sitting nearby or she's sitting nearby, and I in that chair, waiting for them to get up. And I, I always tell them, I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do, what do you mean what I'm doing? I'm like, don't play that with me. Like, you're not very good at this. <laughs> How'd you know? Because I did it already. Why would you do that? Why would you think it's okay to just hop in the chair right as soon as they're gone? You know they're probably coming back in a few minutes. Why wouldn't you ask them, hey, are you going to sit there anymore? I really like that chair, but I don't want to do that. Why wouldn't you handle it that way? Why not just communicate? Because there's selfishness in your heart. Why are you upset that you got up and they sat in the chair? See how comfortable they are? Like you can't find another spot to sit down? Is that chair or being comfortable more important than your sibling? Throw the chair out. (laughs) No idols in this house. Darkness is still there, you know, and it still hits us, hits us big time as adults. Me and Bev, we have some conversation now, we just start laughing at each other because we're like, I'll tell her I'm, I'm being ridiculous, aren't I? And she's like, yeah. You know, or she'll say that, you know, like, I'm sorry, I'm just being selfish or, you know, small minded, not really not really thinking about how this affects you. Darkness is still out there, so we're constantly learning. We live in a paradox, so this commandment is a paradox. It's old, but it's new all the time as we learn. Now, while that's true, while our world is a paradox and a believer's understanding of what it means to love others isn't something we've perfectly figured out yet, while that's true, every true believer will be making progress on that path of loving others. Just because we're, we're still figuring it out doesn't mean that's an excuse to not love somebody. We should be making progress, and every true believer will be making progress on that path. Now, that reality, that it's a paradox, but this is where I should be going, that is both encouraging to me and challenging to me. The reason I find it encouraging is because That means the test is not, do you perfectly love everyone all the time, Will? Because I will never pass that test. I will never pass, not this side of heaven, I will not ever pass that test. If that was a test, I'd be lost forever. But it is challenging to me 
because it means that the bar of what it means to love never moves. It never changes. Like, God doesn't go, well, you know, you haven't quite got it all figured out yet, so we'll just leave you there. Nope. Lord goes, we're, we're bringing here. We're going here. Keep walking. Lord, it feels like it's so far away. It is, but keep walking. I feel like I've learned a lot. You have. You have a lot more to learn. Keep walking. That's what a believer does. A believer never goes, I don't have to love anymore. I don't have to love that person. A believer recognizes that. And so with all that groundwork laid on what this command is to love one another, John explains the details now of our test. Verse 9, he that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. Now, that's interesting. It's not he that is in the light but hates his brother. No, what John is describing is two, two opposite, two things that can't be true together, but they're side by side. Now he's, he's explaining a contradiction. They cannot exist side by side. This is not a paradox. Now we have a problem. He says, the one, or he that says, which literally means the one who's constantly saying, I'm in the light. This is similar to our first test in verse 4. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments. We have these, these two participles, these two participles in the present tense side by side. A participle is a noun that has verbal-like qualities. In other words, it has action-like qualities to it. So the idea is that these two actions are coexisting. They're in the present. They're coexisting. First thing that's coexist, that is in existence is a claim. And the claim is, in the light, I presently exist. Like, I'm fine. Well, God's fine with me right now. I'm walking in the light. He's in the light. We have fellowship. Like, me and Jesus, we're good. We're close. While at the same time, existing at the same time, is hatred for a brother. Paradox of our world exists. The paradox of the command to love one another exists because we're always growing. But a believer cannot exist in two worlds at once. You can't be of the darkness and of the light. You can't. So I can't claim to be in the light while rejecting the command to love others that has been given by that light. I can't. Now, we do need to define hatred. What does it mean to hate your brother? I think it's really important to define hatred biblically because I think, and I think you'd probably agree with me, that word hate is thrown around super casually in our culture. Uh, just last week, retired football coach Tony Dungy tweeted that he was excited to speak at this year's March for Life in Washington, D.C. Greg Doyle, a sports columnist for the Indianapolis Star, tweeted a response to that. And I quote, he says, I'm getting notes from parents of LGBTQ children who have tried suicide, got a note from one whose child succeeded. So am I intolerant of his beliefs, Coach Dungy's beliefs? Yes, because his beliefs are hateful and hurtful. So, brings up a question. Is saying what the Bible says about the unborn, or is saying what the Bible says about gender, is that hatred? Well, the New Testament word for hate, it means to detest someone or something, to dislike someone or something strongly, with the implication of you have aversion or hostility toward them or that thing. What's aversion? Well, dictionaries defined averse as a strong feeling of dislike, a reluctance or lack of enthusiasm. Dictionaries define hostility as being unfriendly or behaving like someone is an enemy combatant. 
you got to take them out. I am, it's a silly example, but I am adverse to peanut butter. There is no enthusiasm going on when I see or hear about peanut butter. One might even say that I am quite hostile toward peanut butter. I keep my distance, and I want to get as far away from it as possible if it gets close to me. But while I have a really hard time understanding peanut butter people, none of that means I hate people who like peanut butter. My beautiful bride really likes peanut butter, and I'm super enthusiastic about her. Not so much about kissing her after she's eaten some peanut butter, but I'm super enthusiastic about her. What's my point from that silly illustration? Hating what someone does does not mean hating them. Being brokenhearted for someone else's behavior, but deciding to be kind and friendly toward them, that's love. That's not hatred. Jesus actually explains these two concepts side by side when he is rebuking the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Jesus corrects the people for lacking love toward him and others, and then he commends them for hating the deeds of a certain group. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Jesus says this to them, you're doing all this stuff right, like you got lots of ministry going on, you pre- the preaching's good, you're serving people, it's great, but nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Love is absent in your church, love for me, love for others. Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen and repent and do the first works. Get back to love, or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent. I'm not going to be in a church where there's no love. But then he says, but you do have this going for you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Isn't that interesting? Jesus commends the Ephesians for hating the deeds of a group of people who were involved in false teaching. But he critiques them for their lack of love for people. That's what the Bible teaches. So this hatred that John speaks of for a brother in 1 John is when you or I have strong feelings of dislike for a person when I lack enthusiasm for them, or when I treat a brother or sister in Christ in an unfriendly way, or even like they're an enemy combatant instead of my family. That's hating a brother or a sister. And if someone points that out to me, that I'm acting that way, that I'm not being friendly towards a brother or sister, or I'm treating them like an enemy, not like family, or I'm not enthusiastic about them, like I'm I'm running the other direction, When I see them come through the doors, I'm like, I gotta go pray. If someone were to point that out to me, my answer should be, you know what? You're right. I need to deal with that. I need to grow in my love for that person because Jesus loves them. If I don't respond that way when I'm confronted, because that's what the idea here is, someone's going, I'm in the light. I'm in the light. I don't have to love them and be in the light. John's going, you're walking contradiction. If I don't respond that way or I justify my behavior by saying I don't have to love that person to love Jesus, 
I don't have to be friendly to that person to love Jesus. I don't have to treat that person like family to love Jesus. John says, you're a walking contradiction. You're still a part of the world that's opposed to Jesus. Now again, don't hear what I'm not saying. John doesn't say, if you don't perfectly love everyone all the time, you're not saved. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that if there are people in the body of Christ that you refuse to interact with or you are unfriendly toward or when you think about them, you constantly think about how much you don't like them, then it's time for an honest conversation with the Lord because that's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. I, it takes a lot to get under my skin unless you're my wife or my kids. Generally, I'm, you could, you could, hurl a lot of stuff my way, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, doesn't usually bother me too much. Um, and the main reason for that is, is because my natural disposition is to not like people. I remember as a young man at Bible college, sensing a call to be a pastor, and uttering the awful words, I love the church, it's just Christians I don't like. When I got serious in my walk with the Lord, it was on a mission trip to Haiti. And I fell in love with the people down there. I fell in love with the church. It was so different than how things are here. And they've got their own problems. They've got their own issues. And if I was there long enough, I probably wouldn't like them either. <laughs> but there were elements in my particular, not my home church, but the community, like in my high school, believers and, you know, other believers there. And, and then in the in the other places in the community that I interacted with other believers where I, they just, things drove me nuts. Like, how can you call yourself a Christian and act like that? Like, why doesn't the Bible matter to you? I mean, all these things just drove me nuts. And down there, it was so simple. Like, people had always had time for people, and, and they were hungry for the Word, and, and you know, they, they were open to the gospel, and they were open to you coming and talking to them about the gospel. I felt like when I come here, I couldn't even talk to a Christian about doing something that God wanted us to do. Are you being legalistic? Why, why are you giving me a hard time? Like, what do you mean why am I giving you a hard time? You're in sin. I care about you. I should give you a hard time. Why don't you care about the fact that you're in sin? And I remember being at school, and that was my mentality. I just don't like American Christians. God, don't make me an American pastor. Truth, not a lie. No, no sarcasm there. Send me off to, I want to be a missionary. Send me off to another place. I don't want to come back here. I don't like the church in the States. I remember the Lord told me, he said, Will, he said, you're, you're just like Moses when he struck the rock. You don't, you don't even have a clue about how I feel toward my people. Like, I love the church in the States. I love the church in America. I love all the churches in your city. I love all those people. I want to work in their lives. I care about them. I'm patient with them, and I want someone who will go be patient with them and love them through the unique challenges they face and unique struggles they have. And that person is not you. And so I knew that like, I would have to deal with this, that God would have to change me and make me someone who liked people. Even though God's done that work in my life and I don't... I don't get bothered real easily you know, by things. There are still personality quirks that irritate me. There are still some of the ways that 
we do church here in the States, or we do Christianity, I should say, in the States, that I'm like, <laughs> like why? why is this an issue? It's why I'm not on social media. I don't want to see it. Don't want to see it. I don't want to see the church behaving nothing like the church is supposed to behave. So there are things out there that still bother me, but, but the idea is like you can't just write off a brother or sister because they're still growing or they have struggles. We don't like them. Or they do things you're like, why? Because Jesus, the true light, the one you claim it, that's shining inside of you, he wants to interact with them. He is friendly toward them. He likes them. I've heard pastors say, you don't have to like them, but you got to love them. Where's that in the Bible? I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. I don't see Jesus be like, all right, um, Peter, James, John, over here. Do I have to, Lord? Okay, Dad. Thaddeus, you too. I wake up in the morning. I don't like me. Like I get, you know, you get in the mirror and you're like, you, you're still here? Ah, the largest irritant in my life is me. And I crack open my Bible and the Lord just starts speaking to me. He's so enthusiastic about hanging out with me. He wants to spend time with me. That blows me away. And if that's the case with me, how could I ever be like, well, no, they're, they're just too weird or too annoying or whatever that I, I won't, I'm unwilling to let God work on my heart and help me progress in my love towards that person. The command to love others cannot be something that's up in the air in my heart. It can't. It could be a struggle, but it can't be an optional part of my faith. I'm not checking that box. Because if it is an optional part of your faith and your claim is a lie and you need to get right with God. And so this morning as the, the team comes up and closes us out with a song, if you have aversion or hostility or friendliness in your heart toward a brother or sister in Christ but you're not taking it to the Lord so he can change your heart and fill it with his love for them, if that's not your response, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples. This is part of what it means. This is part of how we recognize if we're in the faith or not. The person who is truly born again is less interested in making claims and more interested in living out Jesus' command. Because anyone can say, I'm in the light, I love Jesus. But when Jesus is living inside of you, he's not gonna let you get away with not loving your brothers and sisters. He's gonna keep working on you and you're gonna be progressing on that journey. So, I ask you this morning, maybe as I was teaching, maybe a person's face popped into your mind. Maybe they kept popping into your mind during the teaching. Maybe it was a group of people. Maybe it was my face. <laughs> if you've been pushing that voice away or if that's your general tendency, 
when the Lord's saying, this ain't right, and you're just, you push it away, then you should be uncomfortable right now because you need to repent. While our world is a paradox and the commandment to love one another is a paradox, being born again is not a paradox. You're either born again or you're not. A person is either dead in their sins or they're born from above. You're either lost or you're found. You're either in Christ with all of the blessings or you're under God's wrath with all the judgment that comes with that. And so maybe some of you this morning, you know, you you think to yourself, love isn't a part of my life. Like, I don't want to be with God's people. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to be with certain parts of God's people. And you're being convicted about that right now, then this might be a time to go, Lord, am I, have I ever repented of my sins and trusted Christ as my Savior, or am I just being religious? And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, no, I know I've, I know I've repented of my sins and trusted Christ, but man, I think I'm, that's, I'm, I'm like in darkness right now. Well, then come into the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, with God, with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Today is the day to bring that into the light and let God deal with it so you don't leave here in the darkness. Let's all stand. There are all sorts of reasons why it might not come easy to love a brother or sister in Christ. And like I said, I'm, I'm sure I drive a couple of you crazy at least. But someone who is born again, someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, The Holy Spirit's saying, Will's your brother. You have to love him. I know he can be annoying, but he means the world to me. Enough that I died for him. Whoever it is that's in your mind right now, the same things the Spirit of God is saying about them. So Lord, you know our hearts. You know exactly what we're battling through right now. You know... Some of us, this may have even been a fight we had four or five years ago with you and then we hardened our heart and now all of a sudden you're bringing it back to the surface. Lord, I pray right now for everyone in the hearing of my voice that there wouldn't be a single person that's not hearing you deal with that right now. Lord, that every one of us would hear that gentle voice calling us to repentance, your kindness leading us to repentance. Your spirit, Lord, letting us know you can't leave here today and stay this way. You've got to deal with this. And Lord, that motive for that is because of the great love you've shown to us, the great light you've given to us. So Lord, for every brother or sister this morning that's crying out to you and saying, Lord, I know I I need to change this. I know, I know this can't stay this way. Would you help them to love that person or that, those individuals or that group? Lord, if there's maybe someone here to, this morning or you know, maybe there's you know, a large portion here saying, I, I, Lord, I know I, I can't have this aversion to the family of God. I can't just keep going about my life and just doing church on Sunday morning. I know I need these relationships and I, I know that you need to work on my heart. I want you to work on my heart. Lord, work on their heart. Fill them with love. Lord, show them that next, that next step in the process of growing in their love. And then, Lord, if there's anyone here today who might be saying, Lord, I don't, I don't even feel any of that love inside and I want to get right with you. Lord, as they confess their sins and put their trust in you and what you did on the cross for them, would you give them new life, make them born again? 
We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.